Good morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit. If I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for, for this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. chapter 13 the end of the book we come to it the message entitled examine yourself father I pray that you give us understanding of your word that I might be spirit filled as a teacher that each one of us might be spirit filled listeners that we not be hearers only but obedient Lord so many things can be handled just by listening to the word or give us ears to hear and then examine our own lives. Lord, that one day we might be found faithful when we stand before you and hear, well done, faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen. There's nothing heavier to the heart of a pastor than trouble in the church. Even if it's not with a pastor, which often it is. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, clear back in Exodus God had delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And so they get outside of town, they get to the Red Sea, and all of a sudden here comes Pharaoh and his armies. 
In Exodus 14, 11, then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you not dealt with us? In, why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone. We want to be slaves. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians to die in the wilderness. And then what happens? Moses says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. God opens the Red Sea. Moses told him, these Egyptians you see today, you will never see them again. Why? Because God was going to wipe out his army. And he did. And they get over the other side and they see the army wiped out and they're jumping around and they're dancing and they're singing, oh, God is great. Two months later, they're beginning to run out of the food that they'd brought out of Egypt with them. And so Exodus 16, they set out from Elam and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. You have brought us out to the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Yeah, that's what God was doing. Remember when John Hutchinson preached through this years ago. And he said, you know what happens in churches and with us? Because it's just human. We get trouble. We glorify the past. Oh, it was great being a slave in Egypt. We were so safe there. And, and Pharaoh just cared for every need. He really took care of us. It was great. Yeah, being a slave was wonderful. And we exaggerate the future. We're all going to die out here. And blame the leadership. It's Moses' fault. Yeah, right. Moses is the one that did all the miracles that caused Pharaoh to be able to open up the doors so they could leave. Moses is the one that opened the Red Sea. He's the one that provided manna. Yeah, that was all Moses. Moses is the one that caused the cloud to appear and rise up and lead and pillar fire by night, pillar cloud by Yeah, that was all Moses. Nope, it wasn't. But grumbling is what we love to do. And we love to blame the leadership. That was going on here. Paul has spent time away. He brought the gospel. They've been established in the faith. Now some Judaizers come in, a few false teachers, but it wasn't just them. Some were being led astray. And since Paul wasn't there to defend himself, is obviously Paul was the problem. And so they begin to grumble. When there's trouble, it's easy to blame somebody else. Now Paul comes to the end of this book, and he says, no, first of all, we're going to look at the facts. He says in verse 1, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. He goes on to talk about this weakness and strength. He said, you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, who is weak toward you, but mighty, is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. They're accusing Paul of being weak. Remember, they'd already said, you know, 
his letters are real strong. He's a big guy when he writes, but he just, when he shows up, he's just not much. And they forget that that's how Jesus was. The Bible says about Jesus that when he came, he didn't break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. There was a lot of evil and a lot of things that could have been confronted. He Probably some people thought he should have judged in power, but he didn't. He didn't come as a judge the first time. He came as the Savior, as a servant to seek and to save the lost. And he was merciful and he was long-suffering. Sometimes people come to Christ and right away they become a judge. And you wonder if they really got saved or they just got a new set of hammers. You know, they were Catholic before, they were Baptist before, whatever they were before, and now they've got something. Someone writes, they go out, beat everybody on the head. You messed up here. You, you messed up over here. And the Bible's kind of clear about how we need to be like the Lord Jesus, and some would say that's weakness. But the Bible says in Proverbs 19, 9, he who conceals a transgression seeks love. Proverbs 19, 11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Does that mean he's compromising, allowing sin? No. It means that sometimes, just like the apostle Paul is doing here, he's giving time for that person to realize who the Lord is so they can make their own decision. You know, the best counseling is done from the pulpit. You know that? If people heed the word, they don't have to have so much one-on-one counseling. It's not that we don't need it or we don't want it. Sometimes that's necessary. But the best thing is when somebody hears the word and they just heed it. They obey it. Now, I wish that's the way it was all handled. We wouldn't have to confront. But we do. And so Paul's saying, listen, we're going to look at the facts. And I'm coming to you this time. I've told you two times already we're going to deal with this. I've given you space to be able to deal with it, but God's church is precious, and now we're going to deal with it. I'm not going to spare anybody. We're going to get down to the facts. So maybe you're the common denominator here. I remember in a sermon by Andy Stanley, he was talking to a woman who'd been through three marriages, and so he asked her a very pertinent question. In all these three marriages where all these guys have abandoned you or whatever's happened, what's the common denominator I don't know. You are. You're the common denominator in all these problems. What, me? We like to shove. It's easy to shove our problems. Leadership not doing their job. Moses didn't do his job. Pastor's not doing his job. My wife's not doing her job. The kids, you can blame somebody else, but what is your part in this? What is your part? Look at the facts. Just be willing to have a transparent heart and look at the facts. The Pharisees don't do that. The fleshly heart doesn't do that. It makes a defense and it builds a wall and it begins to get its weapons and gather an army so everybody will be behind you. But you know, we don't have to build a defense against the Lord. Paul says, we're going to examine the facts and you need to remember your accusation that I'm weak. That's what the Lord Jesus was. He was so weak, he became man, and he submitted under the weakness of the cross. He gave his life for us. Remember those Pharisees who walked in front of the cross? They said, ah, you're weak. You saved other people, you can't save yourself. That's exactly what he did. He could have called for legions of angels. He could have thought the thought and thought this world out of existence. He spoke it into existence. He could have spoken it out. But he submitted under that weakness. 
He was merciful. Even in our own Christian life, how many times could he bring severe discipline? He has every right, doesn't he? Every time. But he gives mercy and he gives grace and he's long-suffering. Give us an opportunity to repent. That's what Paul was doing. Secondly, Paul says, examine your faith. Maybe the problem is you haven't just wandered from the Lord or you've forgotten what he taught. Maybe you're not saved. Maybe you made a profession, but it was all about you looking good. And now you found the truth and you become the judge of everybody else. We've already said, well, how can we do that? How can we tell? It's not by external things. By examining our life according to the word of God. You know, in, in 1 John, what we find, the whole epistle is written about the marks of the believer. Not things you do to get saved, but things that are going to be in your life and are going to be growing motivations that you have because you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior. He begins and he says, those things that you've heard and seen and touched of the word of life, you desire to share with others. You just desire to have them find that same peace in Christ. You, that, that's what he puts in you. And a new desire for fellowship and a desire for the word. He said, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with him with another. You have a new relationship with the family of God. And there's a new conviction of sin. Before you came to Christ, you justified, you built a case, you covered up, you compared. But in Christ, we can be transparent because our righteousness is not our own. We don't have to go around saying, hey, I'm righteous. Hey, I'm like Christ. We don't have to do that. Because it's fact. We desire new things. And one of the things that happens is all of a sudden, we become very transparent. We can confess ourselves, our, our sins one to another because our righteousness is not our own. So John writes in 1 John 1, 8, if you say you have no sin, you lie, the truth's not in you. Because the mark of the believers, we're always confessing our sin. And if we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. People come to me and say, I'm really struggling with this. I'm really wrestling with this. Well, let's cut to the chase. Is what you're dealing with sin? Yes, then tell God it's sin. You don't have to clean it up. He said, if you agree with me, it's sin, then he will deal with and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Agree with God. The problem is sometimes we think that's a one-time thing, and so Maybe it's bitterness, and you have this bitterness come up. No, I've confessed that, so this must be something new. I guess I should continue to be angry about this. No, no, no. Satan loves to come back around and say, hey, take a hold of this. Remember how good that used to feel when you were angry at your brother? Yeah, take a hold of that again. You're going to find out you feel just as good. So grab that bitterness again. What do you do then as a believer? You recognize it as your sin again and say, God, that is wickedness. I agree with you. Please cleanse me from that. Please cleanse me from it. He goes on to say the result, 1 John chapter 2, is that as you're always confessing your sin, he said, little children, I write to you this sin not. But if you do sin, remember this, you have an advocate, you have an attorney, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He stands and pleads for you. And the natural result is you continue to confess your sin, your love for Christ is going to grow and grow, and you're not going to want to sin anymore. 
And then he goes on to say, another mark of the believer is your love for the brother. He spends a lot of time in that epistle talking about our love for the brother. And how he says, let's not just love in word. It's not just a principle or a doctrine, but let's love in deed and in truth. And if you see your brother has a need and you don't reach out to help him, how is that the love of God, right? If you don't love the brother, you hate the brother, how can God's love dwell in you? Not to be judgmental. We're supposed to be loving one another. Do we have to grow? Amen. We always got to be growing because Satan will always find a new way to put a burr under your saddle. And maybe it's not always Satan. Maybe it's just you. you. Some things just bug you. Well, get over it. Grow up. Learn how to love. Second Peter. Peter says, God has given us everything we need to be successful in our Christian life. But he says, if you know him, verse 5, for this very reason, apply all diligence to your faith, supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly love, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you lack these things, you lack these qualities, you don't have that desire to grow, it may be that you're blind, you're still in the sin, or you've backslidden. Maybe you've never grown. You came into life with bitterness, and that's your excuse, the way you were treated in the past. You just brought that into your life, and you never confess it's your sin. You say, but that was done to me. No, I'm not saying you confess the sin that was done to you, but you confess your decision to be bitter about it. That's sin. That's sin. You're saying, God, I knew better than to let that happen to me. I'm going to be bitter against you. I'm going to express that every chance I get. No confess it as sin. He's responsible to cleanse you. But it's okay to go back and examine, am I in the faith? What is my salvation based upon? Is it based upon my works, how good I think I am, what I do? Or is it founded in the word of God? John MacArthur kind of wraps it up this way. He said, first, genuine faith is marked by penance over sin. That when you are convicted of sin, God convicts you and you're sorrowful over it. And you can't just leave it hang around. You've got to deal with it. So you keep short accounts. And it's not hard for God to convict you. You just see it in your word. You hear it taught and you say, Lord, search me and try me like the psalmist did. See if there be any wicked way. See if there's a blind spot. Lord, I want to be righteous before you. Secondly, Genuine faith is marked by a desire for righteousness. In Matthew 5, 6, Jesus said that the redeemed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not by outward, but by inward. That what comes from the inside. It marks by those desires that are growing to love one another, to be like Christ. In spite of what anybody else thinks about it, your desire is to be like Christ. Third, genuine faith is marked by submission to a divine authority. Sinners are rebellious to God's word, and they're not going to listen to God's teachers either. But in your life, it doesn't mean that a teacher is always right, because we're going to be always right till we get to heaven. But your life is, design, is, is characterized by submission to the word and to the leaders that God establishes. Are they perfect? Absolutely not. They are not a personal authority in your life. But the word of God they speak, and the same thing Paul was coming when he came, was speaking God's word. 
And he said, compare that with your life. What is God's word saying about your life? Our security is wrapped up in the word of God. Fourth genuine saving faith is marked by obedience. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? Finally, genuine faith, and we've already said this, is marked by love. Love for God, love for the brethren, love for his church. We don't want to... We don't want to mess with God's church. We want to be a part of it. We want to build it. We're not going to tear it down. And love for the lost because Jesus loves the lost. He came to seek and to save for those that were lost. And we love the word of God. We're growing in our love for it that it might be the rule for our life, the standard, our strength, that which rebukes us, that which encourages our comfort is found in the word of God. Fourth, verses 7 through 10, Paul says, I want you to examine your motives. We can get all in our own corner about how we're right. Think about those, those leaders. Some of them have been distracted by false teaching. And as soon as they're distracted by false teaching, all of a sudden they've set themselves up against the one who brought them the gospel in the first place. And they, but if I, if I don't change, then I could have my, my, my place taken away and I, I wouldn't have my responsibility and my leadership and my position. And Paul comes very transparently. He says, listen, this is not about me. It's about the truth. What he says. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that, so that we ourselves may be approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unproved, unapproved. It's not about me, Paul said. We got to get to the truth. We can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray, that you may be made complete or healed again. It's like a bone that's been broken or out of joint and put back right again. Paul's desire was the same as James when James wrote, let patience have her perfect work that you may be full and entire, lacking nothing. Paul said in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, we preach Christ, reaching every man, teaching every man that we might present every man complete. That was his goal. He said earlier in this book, I don't even judge myself because they were criticizing him. And he's telling them, listen, you can criticize me all you want, but God's the one that sees He's the one that's going to have the final say in this. And what we want is the truth. For this reason, I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. The church is precious. And as much as it's heavy when we have to go confront sin, and it's not fun, but it's necessary. But Paul said, you know what's better? When people actually consider the word and we don't have to. Wouldn't that be wonderful if everybody just heard the word and they were obedient at the sound of the word? But they're not. So Paul said, I've been waiting, I've been patient, but I'm coming this time. My prayer is, he says, that I don't have to be severe, but God's word will work in your heart and prove your salvation because you submit to the word and we would find peace. His concern was that the Corinthians be obedient and strong. He didn't mind appearing weak in the, in the mind of the world. That's what the world said about Jesus. He was weak. How can a leader submit himself and just die? Paul said, it's about the truth. We're going to find the truth. We're going to apply the truth. 
You need to listen to the truth. Lastly, he says, examine your fellowship. Examine the facts. Examine your salvation. And examine your fellowship. You know, the first thing to go in our Christian life is fellowship. Old story told about when everybody had bent seats in their car. And the wife's sitting on the other side next to the door now, and she says, uh, you know, we've really drifted apart over the years. And he said, I haven't gone anywhere. You can blame the Lord. You can blame other believers. But where is your walk with the Lord? Where's your walk? Troubles come. Challenges come. That's part of the Christian life. The hill of difficulty. In Pilgrim's Progress, they came to the hill of difficulty. And on the other side of the fence, it looked like Bypath Meadows was an easier way to go. And so they said, let's just hop the fence. Well, we're supposed to say on this road, though, yeah, but look, it, it takes a parallel path. Let's take the easy road for a while. Where'd they end up with? The castle of despair and despond. And when God renewed them, where did he bring them? Right back to the place they left the path. It's going to be difficult. But when it gets difficult because of Maybe it's just outside the church, financial challenges. Satan can use anything to distract you. Maybe it is another Christian that's wounded you, or maybe you thought they did, or, or maybe it's just life has gotten hard and you've gone through trials. Whatever it is, Satan loves to separate us off and get us by ourselves. Then we're out there by ourselves. And then it's easy, as they were doing to Paul, to begin to judge Paul. Well, he's all messed up. That's why he's being so critical of us. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Don't let Satan call you out of the fellowship. I want to commend you as a church. You have been a very loving church over the years. You don't even know how many pastors discouraged in ministry have come to this flock and quietly been a part of it. And you have lifted them up. Well, what did I do? You say, what did I do? You just love one another. I've told people with a smile that in this flock, the lanolin is supernatural. You just walk among this flock and they're loving one another and you get loved. There's a pastor that's with the Lord now and years ago he came, he was discouraged with ministry, he'd been in the mission field and discouraged and his family's discouraged and been the pastor and he was just kind of done with ministry and he came he was here for over a year with us and he had more education more experience older than I was but when he left he said Paul you know what this church has taught me serving the Lord isn't a job it's ministry that's right and every one of us every single one of us have ministry but when we get out of sort and we're not in fellowship we stop ministering we start getting self-focused, and then pretty soon, we're like the guy who, in his sleep, somebody smeared Limburger cheese under his nose and his mustache, and he wakes up, and the whole world stinks, right? He said, no, examine your fellowship. There's comfort and encouragement. That's why we're always reminding you, listen, if you're not in a small group, get in a small group. While it's a very precious time and probably the most powerful time of ministry on Sunday morning, the fellowship between services and after service is not enough. You need to get in a small group. You need that accountability, that comfort, that strengthening. 
And I know we're all cowboys out here. We all only need one another. We're independent, but that's not true. God did not save us to be independent little satellites. He saved us to be part of a family. And he said, you need to be healed. What's going on with your fellowship? That's the first thing to leave. And pretty soon you're just not available and nobody's looking for you. Nobody cares about you. But what have happened to you? He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we don't have to do that. That's cultural. In those days, it was, the ministries were a lot separate, men and women, so it's not guys kissing girls, but guys kissing guys, girls kissing. That's, that's cool, you know, if that's come from Russia or something. You know, they, some of our pastors have been surprised when they go to Russia and the other pastors kiss them right in the lips, like, whoa, praise the Lord, love you. Cultural thing. I think we might substitute a handshake, hearty handshake. But, you know, don't, don't bust out the door. If you got time, wait around. And listen, you and I have a responsibility to make sure we're greeting as many people as possible. It's so powerful. Just that little, hey, how are you doing? Or finding that friend you've been praying for to find out what God has done. Or finding out, is there a burden you can help bear? What can I pray for in your life? that greeting. And then he takes it further and he says, all the saints greet you. So there's your fellowship with one another in a local church. And then there's the fellowship with other churches. Oh, that's precious. Yesterday I was talking to David. I had gone to St. George to help move Mark down there with Don. And we had a great time just seeing what's going on down there with Sam. And, but I didn't get to talk to David. So yesterday I called him and he shared with me that one of the faithful, faithful men over there, his name's Dean. You pray with him too. Dean and Allison, they're from Great Britain. Just a wonderful couple. And Dean collapsed this week, and they don't know what it was. They, they checked it. It wasn't a heart attack, and it wasn't a stroke with the test they've done so far. And he's getting better. But, oh, because I know Dean, my heart's like, oh, we got to, let's pray for Dean. And I, I told David, I'll have the church pray for Dean. Dean needs, and you tell them, you tell Dean and Allison, we're praying for them. And I know that you don't know Dean, but many of you are going to have a heart for him because he's such a precious part of that church and we have investment in that church and we love him. And we might not see Dean till he gets to heaven. But when you get there, you can say, hey, Dean, I was praying for you. Jason's going to go to Scotland, Lord willing. And when he comes back, his report, and he's going to report about some precious people. He's going to say, would you pray for these people? And we're going to take more on and We're going to pray for them too. The fellowship of the churches is precious. And then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Oh, that's where it's at, isn't it? If you're in fellowship with God, you're going to be in fellowship with one another. If you're going to be in fellowship with God and maybe that's gone astray and it's okay, look at it here and say, God, that's been lacking. If, if my fellowship is not with one another, then maybe something's lacking in my fellowship with the Lord. And he said, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't that wonderful? The power and the desire to be obedient. Jesus' grace is available for us. Don't drift away. And the love of God the supernatural love that we got at salvation, that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, to die for his enemies, to die for his enemies. We have that potential for that kind of love. 
People don't have to get all squared away before we can love them because we have the love of God that died for his enemies. And thirdly, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. What will we do without that comfort, that encouragement? As you grow in Christ, you get a very tender heart, don't you? Just an attitude. And the Holy Spirit says, hey, hey, hey. You know, you go, oh, got to get that right. Got to deal with that. But then the comfort of the word when you're hurting and the Holy Spirit comes so close to you, sometimes closest when you're hurting the worst in times of sorrow. And what you remember later is the Holy Spirit just kind of picking you up and giving you words that gave a salve and a balm and a comfort and a love like God was hugging you. How's the fellowship? Well, did it work? Paul wrote this letter again. It's the third time he's going to come to them. He's been finding out what's happened. Did it work? Because sometimes it's hard. We think, well, if I just do what God's word says, yeah, it might not turn out so good. And most churches have gone away from dealing with discipline or with confronting sin. Just kind of let it, let it all hang out. Can you imagine a rancher doing that? Well, I know there's a lot of disease out there, but you know, brand, uh, inoculation makes my cows so uncomfortable and they got to put them in that chute and lock them down. I think, I was, no, no, I'll just leave them out for the disease in the world. No, we don't do that. But did it work? We see what the word of God says. Is it going to work? Well, we're confident it did. Paul wrote Romans during his three-month stay at Corinth. And nor in Romans did Paul express any concerns about his his present situation. Second, Paul wrote to the Romans about his plan to visit Spain via Rome. If things were still chaotic in Corinth, it's unlikely he would have had imminent plans to leave there. Thirdly, indicates that the Achaeans, as noted above, Corinth was in Achaia, had responded to Paul's appear regarding a collection for the Jerusalem church. And if they were still in chaos, I doubt they would have been wanting to sacrifice for other believers down in Jerusalem. The word of God, we can trust it. In our life, in our church, we can just trust God's word. Isaiah 55, 10, 11 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. We can trust God's word. And even though it's difficult, we're called to be obedient. This is his church. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that it work in our own lives, that desire for righteousness to be like Jesus, to be weak and submissive when we need to be weak and to be strong when we need to be strong, to be available for fellowship, to be an encouragement, to be available for rebuke and confrontation. Lord, to be a church that's found obedient, that we as individuals might hear one day, well done, faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing together.